Revelation chapter 13 shows us a new expanded form of the great dragon that we read about in Revelation chapter 12. His influence is and his person is iterated across two new repetitions of two new beasts and together these three beings create a triumvirate a counterfeit group that is something like a satanic version of the Godhead itself. We read how uh, their influence then spreads across the earth and how it infiltrates the minds and hearts of the people of the earth, everyone except those, in fact, who have not had their name engraved in the Lamb's Book of Life. And speaking of engraved, we read at the end about a mark, which is a, a stark counterfeit version of a mark that we read about earlier in Revelation that is engraved into the right hand or onto the foreheads of those who worship this beast. So these are dark themes, and they can be difficult to understand. I think, however, if we approach this chapter with the same understanding that President Benson gave us when he talked about the way in which the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ, then I think we're approaching this chapter in the right spirit, uh, because it does benefit us as readers to come to a better understanding of who it is that we're up against. And so now that the dragon has been introduced in the previous chapter, uh, in chapter 13, this is the story of two beasts that rise up and combine. The first beast rises up out of the sea, as we read in verse 1, and the second beast rises up, or it says, comes up out of the earth in verse 11. So moving first to verses 1 and 2, where the manner of, of this beast's entry onto the stage and also its form is laid out. Let's read these. Verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So we're differentiating here in verse 2 between the dragon himself and this beast which is rising up out of the sea. This is important because having just read about a dragon who has multiple heads, multiple crowns, and multiple horns, we can uh, mistake this for being the same uh, being. But it is not, and there are some differences here. Uh, this beast has ten crowns, unlike the dragon's seven, which may seem like mo more, but when these numbers are taken as uh, qualitative measures, uh, 
number uh, the, the number of ten crowns would be less complete than seven crowns, uh, unlike the dragon who who holds the power and lends it to this beast. We also see that his crowns rest upon his horns. Remembering too that all of these images are symbolic, and when we try to reconstruct these images in our minds. Uh, then, then we come up with things that are bizarre. But if we if we try to find the message that's underneath them, then it helps. And th- this is what we'll do with the animals that are mentioned in verse 2. But ten crowns resting on horns is a little bit different because the horns represent power. And so these crowns, we might uh, take that to mean that they are earned through brute force and from doing the bidding of the more cerebral party, which is the dragon himself. In verse 2, then, we learn that this beast is like unto several things at the same time. Uh, It says it was like unto a leopard, but then its feet were as the feet of a bear, and its mouth as the mouth of a lion. So again, if we try and reconstruct these component parts into a composite, in our minds, we're left with something that's maybe even comical and not particularly formidable. Uh, however, what I think we're to take from this is that those are three known, universally known predators, a lion and a bear and a leopard. All of them gain nourishment by devouring the flesh of others. So this seems to tell us something about the way that this beast gains its nourishment. We know again from verse 2 that it gains its power and its authority from the dragon himself. Now we learn something new about this beast that is really troubling when we, when we see what really is happening here in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So something fantastical is happening here. Uh, this beast has been wounded mortally, and, and yet it is healed. This causes all the world to admire and appreciate what has happened to this beast. So it's something miraculous now, if we think back to the centerpiece of the book of Revelation, and especially the centerpiece of Revelation chapter 5, we will remember that that is the lamb, the lamb that was slain. And so we were presented with an image there of a wounded beast as well, but it is the lamb himself. And so there's something counterfeit happening here. That theme of counterfeit will show up over and over as we progress through this chapter. We find then that in verse 4, the all the world, as it says in verse 3, worships this, not this beast, but worships the dragon which is behind him. Verse 4 reads like this, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. So they worshipped both parties in that order, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So that is worshipful language indeed. Um, 
that this is an example of a tainted world who is worshiping the wrong being. It's interesting then to see that the being responds by claiming godliness and committing blasphemy, and that word shows up three times in the next two verses. Here's a paragraph of commentary by Richard Draper on this tendency for the people of the world to worship this beast. Uh, he says, in light of this evidence, and sorry, that's coming from the previous paragraph, so let me start right here. Uh, Brother Draper says, the beast, together with its heads and horns, represents kingdoms and organizations opposed to Christian principles. However, the beast also seems to be something else, something that undergirds and supports governments and leagues in their anti-religious movements. Its broad influence and wide domain suggest that this beast should be understood as a philosophical system and political ideology inspired by satanic ideals. The revelation shows that the influence of this monster is so great that all the world, except the righteous, begin to revere it and its initiator. But the world's song of praise belies its sincerity and devotion to this master, quote, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him, quoting from this verse 4. The motive for worship is not reverent awe generated by moral greatness, but rather amazement generated by fear or brute force. So there's a lot to take from that, and uh, I think we'll have an opportunity later in this chapter to talk about his his comments about how the influence of this beast and this triumvirate of the dragon and these two beasts that we'll be introduced to really are moving across a broad spectrum of influences that um, could be described more broadly than just religious institutions. Um, it, it reminds me a bit of the, the tendency we seem to have in the church to wonder exactly who the great and abominable church is when we read about that in Nephi's parallel vision. Um, we're probably remiss when we do that because he, I, I doubt very much that uh, the devil limits his uh, influence to one particular sect. Uh, likewise, the false prophets and false Christs are not simply those who uh, feign religiosity and who show up in a religious arena. So that's something to think deeply about. And again, I think we'll have a chance to come back to that idea. Now in verse 5, we, we read um, a phrase that shows up twice in verse 5, and then once in verse 7. I'm going to comment on that now before reading these verses, because it's a passive phrase in a passive voice, and says, And there was given unto him, so given unto this beast, and again, in verse 5, power was given unto him. And then again, in verse 7, power was given him. Now, we know that the dragon gave power to the beast, but this seems to refer to a more sovereign power than this dragon, uh, a greater power still that is um, it's, it's overtly displayed uh, when, when we see that the, the dragon gives his power to the beast it's displayed through this passive voice. There's a greater force at play here uh, that permeates the entire book of Revelation and reminds us that boundaries are set 
around these influ uh, evil influences and that God is in ultimate control. So we, we can infer that from these passages. Now moving back then to verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And there it is again, the three and a half years, or forty and two months, where this beast is allowed to have some semblance of rain. Then verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. So blasphemy against God. And, and it's interesting to note that he's going after the name of God because there's so much power in that name. And uh, there, there's so much more to the concept of his name being reverenced and also his name being profaned um, than we sometimes realize. And uh, it's, it's a useful target then for this beast to go after his name. Now here's the other target that we don't want to miss in verse 6 because it says that he... Uh, his tabernacle, that he wants to blaspheme his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Well, his tabernacle may well be his temple in this case. And I think it would be intuitive to us since the work of the Lord is happening in the, in the temple and that this really, in a way, is the place where we see the atonement of Jesus Christ playing out in real time, because we see covenants that are being extended to others. And we know that that is the mechanism by which we avail ourselves of the saving power of the atonement in its entirety, is to enter into covenants with him. And so it would make sense that this beast, then, is targeting this tabernacle. Verse 7, And it was given unto them, it was given unto him, and there's that, phrase again, I missed that one, uh, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. This then is a terrible episode when this beast has such um, liberty to wreak havoc on such a scale that the phrase kindreds, tongues, and nations would be used. And of course, verse 7 just listed the third target Talked about the name of God in verse 6, his tabernacle, them that dwell in heaven. I guess we could call it a fourth target in verse 7. And then it's the saints. And this beast is going to make war with the saints. That's an important strategic target for him. The way in which he makes war with the saints is to overcome them. Here's some insight from Ezra Taft Benson as to what that can mean. He said, Satan is waging war against the members of the church who have testimonies and are trying to keep the commandments. And while many of our members are remaining faithful and strong, some are wavering, some are falling, some are fulfilling John's prophecy that the war with Satan, that in the war with Satan, some saints would be overcome. The broad reach of this beast that I mentioned in verse 7 is expanded and worsened even more in verse 8, where it reads that, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundations of the world. 
though this is a terrible state, all that dwell on, upon the earth shall worship him, except for this subset of people whose names are written in the book of the Lamb of Life. So we'll explore what the book of life means in just a moment. To say a little bit more about the reach of this beast and how it can be interpreted, we have this from Joseph Smith from his translation of Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And he indicated that the beast is in the likeness of the kingdoms of the earth. He also said on another occasion in the history of the church that when God made use of the figure of a beast in visions to the prophets, he did it to represent those kingdoms which had degenerated and become corrupt, savage, and beast-like in their dispositions, even the degenerate kingdoms of the wicked world. So that's another way to understand uh, this beast as we read about it. Its exact identity doesn't seem to, um, to translate to any one person or being or institution, but as, as we'll see as we go on, it does seem to be a counterfeit savior. To quickly review uh, the way that it operates, then we read in verse uh, 5 and 6 that this beast opposed God and blasphemed against him and that its power was predatory in the same devouring way that predatory animals have over their prey. We find that Satan himself gave it power and most troubling perhaps we find that the people of the world worshipped or followed this beast. These are characteristics that have been displayed throughout history by kingdoms and governments that uh, when doing so exhibit something that Revelation chapter 17 um, alludes to as well and kind of talks about the spirit of the beast. Now coming back to this glimmer of hope that we find in verse 8 where we discover that there are some who uh, do not worship this beast and do not fall prey to his predatory powers. And those are they whose names are written in the book of life. Life of the Lamb slain, as it says in verse 8. So what does that mean? Here's some commentary by Bruce R. McConkie and uh, also by Joseph Fielding Smith. Elder McConkie said, The Book of Life, or Lamb's Book of Life, is the record kept in heaven which contains the names of the faithful and an account of their righteous covenants and deeds. And here are some scriptural references to the Book of Life to show that this um, concept and, and this term has existed in many different dispensations. Here is Psalms 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. It's phrased in the negative there, of course, but there's this notion of a book of life. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, when addressing uh, the city of Sardis, says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, 
but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So as we're reading these references, and I'm about to read an extended uh, reference in Doctrine and Covenants section 128, we're led to wonder exactly what it means to have our names written in the Book of Life, and can we be among those whose names are listed there? Here's section 128, verses 6 through 7. And further, I want you to remember that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject in relation to the dead when he declared, as you will find recorded in Revelation 20:12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 7, you will discover in this quotation that the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life, but the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Consequently, the books spoken of must be the books which contained the record of their works, and refer to the records which are kept on the earth. And the book which was the book of life is the record which is kept in heaven, the principle agreeing precisely with the doctrine which is commanded you in the revelation contained in the letter which I wrote to you previous to my leaving my place, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. Joseph Fielding Smith provides this additional insight into the book of life, quote, We are not going to be saved in the kingdom of God just because our names are on the records of the church. It will require more than that. We will have to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if they are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then it is an evidence we have kept the commandments. Every soul who will not keep those commandments shall have his name blotted out of that book. Here's another reference to the Book of Life, and this is in Alma chapter 5, verses 57 through 58. And now I say unto you, all you that are desirous to follow the voice of the Good Shepherd, come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not their unclean things. And behold, their names shall be blotted out, that the names of the wicked shall not be numbered among the names of the righteous, that the word of God may be fulfilled, which saith, the names of the wicked shall not be mingled with the names of my people. For the names of the righteous shall be written in the book of life, and unto them will I grant an inheritance at my right hand. And now, my brethren, what have ye to say against this? I say unto you, if ye speak against it, it matters not, for the word of God must be fulfilled. It seems, then, that having our names written uh, in the book of life, as it says in verse 8, is a, is a companion concept, uh, and possibly even a synonymous concept, with being sealed and and having that mark of having been sealed in our foreheads, as it says in verse or in chapter seven of Revelation, and also seems to be related to the concept of being members of the church of the firstborn. We can see here that in the end, as the events of the last days progress, it won't be enough for us simply to claim membership to the restored church of Jesus Christ. But we will need to, to be on track, to be sealed and protected in this way. 
and to show absolute fidelity to our covenants and for the word to be found in us. That that seems to be what's happening here. Now we move to verse 9 and 10. It helps to read another translation of this, which I'll do in a moment. Verse 9 says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. Verse 10, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So we'll talk about the patience and the faith of the saints in a moment. But let me first offer another translation of this. Uh, This comes out of the Thomas Wayment translation. And in verse 9 he says, If anyone has an ear, let that person hear. And verse 10, If anyone is to be taken captive, let that person be taken into captivity. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, let that person be killed by the sword. These circumstances require the endurance and faith of the saints. This acknowledges the difficult circumstances of John's time and saying that the patience and the faith of the saints will be what is required to endure this time and to have our names uh, written in the book of life, or as Joseph Fielding Smith called it, and it's called elsewhere, the Lamb's Book of Life. In order to do that, we have to eschew the way of the sword. Another alternate translation of this passage is offered by Richard Draper, where he says, If anyone is destined for captivity, he will go into captivity. If anyone kills with a sword, with the sword he must be killed. And, and so that's when the, the understanding kind of, kind of comes. Uh, because this is similar to what the Savior said in Matthew when he said that all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And so we're learning here that it's the patience and the endurance of the saints that will get us through this. It, it is not to, to, to use the method of the sword. That can seem counterintuitive, that it is the patience and the faith of the saints that is the best weapon against such a formidable beast. And so that's why John takes pains to explain that to us in verses 9 and 10, that even though that is counterintuitive, that is our task. With that in mind, here's a beautiful quote by Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf about about this type of, of patience. He says, Patience is not passive resignation nor is it failing to act because of our fears. Patience means active waiting and enduring. It means staying with something and doing all that we can, working, hoping, and exercising faith, bearing hardship with fortitude, even when the desires of our hearts are delayed. Patience is not simply enduring, it is enduring well. Uh, And that, that ought to remind us of an amazing talk by Elder Maxwell when he talked about enduring well. I think it was in the maybe even 1993, but the early early 90s when he gave a, a conference talk on that subject and talked about how enduring well is not simply pacing up and down the cell of our circumstances. Uh, coming back then to uh, Elder Uchtdorf, he says, Patience is a godly attribute that can heal souls, unlock treasures of knowledge and understanding, and transform ordinary men and women into saints and angels. Patience is truly a fruit of the Spirit. 
Patience means delaying immediate gratification for future blessings. It means reigning in anger and holding back the unkind word. It means resisting evil, even when it appears to be making others rich. Patience means accepting that which cannot be changed and facing it with courage, grace, and faith. It means being willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, even as a child doth submit to his father. And of course, that's a quote from Mosiah 3.19. Ultimately, patience means being firm and steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Every hour of every day, even when it is hard to do so, in the words of John the Revelator, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. So gratefully we come at least to some sense of revolution, excuse me, resolution, uh, and have some sense of, of hope as we come to the end of this passage where we're describing the first beast. Unfortunately, however, in the remaining verses, we now have to come ter- to terms with this second beast who rises up out of the earth and has quite a different form than the first beast. So verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. And now the the, uh, the counterfeit nature of this beast is more overt. He's actually looking like a lamb. And then it says, And he spake as a dragon. To speak as a dragon, and in particular to speak as this dragon, should suggest to us that this beast was well-versed in the rhetoric of Satan. Uh, That can tell us all kinds of things. We, We get lots of rhetoric in the Book of Mormon from the three antichrists that are listed there. Uh, Sherem, Nehor, and Korahor. And so it seems that this beast speaks a similar language. And uh, he, he most certainly, we can tell from his morphology, that he appears to represent Christ. But then out of his mouth is coming the language of the dragon. Uh, this should remind us of this, this statement in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Uh, Here's a a great and thought-provoking quote by President James E. Faust. He said, Satan is the greatest imitator, the master deceiver, the arch counterfeiter, and the greatest forger ever in the history of the world. He comes into our lives as a thief in the night. His disguise is so perfect that it is hard to recognize him or his methods. We also get this from the Bible, Bible Dictionary in the entry, Devil. It says one of the major techniques of the devil is to cause human beings to think they are following God's ways when in reality they are deceived by the devil to follow other paths. So that is what we're dealing with, with this second beast that appears in verse 11. We learn in verse 12 that he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So, his deadly wound was healed, and this and and several other counterfeit wonders uh, follow in the the next few verses. But it's, it's troubling and interesting to see that this second beast then has all the power of the first beast, but the, that he also uh, 
is, is leading the earth to worship the first beast. And in so doing, and, and we can kind of see this in verse 13 and 14 as well, is resembling the Holy Ghost component of a counterfeit Godhead. In verse 13, we find that he, he works with fire as a medium. And in verse 14, he returns to encouraging the people to uh, make actually make an image of the beast and to worship it. Uh, this is probably a good time then to point out that if you look at these three figures, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and you number them out, that would be figure one, figure two, and figure three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, in this case, this evil counterfeit triumvirate would be the dragon, the first beast, and the second. And, and since all of them are counterfeit to their core, the number that represents their counterfeit nature is the number six. And, and that has been established in other times in Revelation that that's the meaning of the number six. And so those three figures are each represented by a six. And so they would combine then, this triumvirate would be represented in the number 666. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of this chapter because that can be uh, interpreted in other ways. But that, that to me is the most reasonable interpretation of the meaning of the mark of the beast, which we'll encounter in a moment. Moving to verse 13 then, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. So that's the third mention of this faux miracle where this beast was wounded by a sword and did live. So he's, he's supporting this, uh, this first beast. Verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. And that's very interesting, I think, unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That's obviously uh, a heavy-handed technique and uh, a heavy-handed approach that uh, runs very much counter to the Lord's determination to allow all of us to keep our agency. And so... This is almost like it's the, the statement when, when uh, Lucifer in Premortality said that not one soul should be lost. That sounds pretty good on the surface, but the intentions that lie behind that are unmasked here in this verse where we find that those who will not worship this beast would actually just be killed. Uh, so that becomes the requirement. Now, this is something of a distillation. Uh, this, this stark requirement would turn almost anyone off. Uh, it reminds us a, a bit of the, um, of the instance of David's friends when they're told to worship a false god and they refuse. But I think we'd be wrong to guess uh, 
that we are only subjected to this moral conundrum where either we worship a false god or we're killed on the spot, uh, I I think we'd be wrong to think that this only happens in this context. Uh, I think that we're often commanded to worship other gods and we're influenced to worship other gods. Uh, Materialism comes into play here and it's a very subtle way Idolatry was referenced a couple chapters back. It's this practice of idolatry and materialism that can bring us into an attitude of worship uh, towards a false Christ and towards this beast. And so that's something that that, um, requires some introspection on all our parts. Then we find um, this, this coercive dogma Um, manifesting in a different way in verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. There's, There's definitely some coercion there, of course. This word mark shows up again in verse 17, and the the Greek word is C-H-A-R-A-G-N-A. Um... It, it can go so far as to mean something like a stamp or an impression or an engraving or an etching and has even been used in, in uh, uh, to indicate the bite of a serpent. So it's not the same as the mark that we're taught about in Revelation chapter 7. It most certainly is a counterfeit version of that and, and comes from force and coercion. And then in verse 17, we find that the people's hand is being forced even further because it says, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So yet another form of persuasion and and nothing tends to, to hit us as hard as things that hit us in the wallet. And so here, those who are not willing to worship and to take this mark upon them are excluded from commerce and they're not allowed to buy and to sell. So this is, this is pressure in the extreme. This was the opportunity that I think I alluded to earlier on in this segment to talk about this domain then of Satan and his followers and, and, and the reach of the great and abominable church and how it does not just function in an environment of, of false religiosity or in a world of, of, of religion. His reach is broader, and we see that from, from this verse because he's infiltrating the world of commerce. Uh, he, he most certainly uses materialism uh, alongside his secular philosophies to, to capture people's hearts and uh, to lead them to destruction. The Book of Mormon is clear on this, teaching us how he uses flax and cords and lulls us into a state of carnal security until we truly are captured. And so each of these unfortunate followers, these automatons, are forced to have the mark or the name of the beast uh, engraven upon them. And, and this is a number. 
we find in the next verse. And it, it, verse 18 says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Going into great detail as to the meaning of this number is is certainly interesting, but perhaps only so useful. Uh, when we've learned at other times that numbers such as this are 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 are, are conveying a concept more than a quantity. Um, and, and in this case, that, that's pretty obvious to all readers, I think. However, we still have a tendency, just like when we're trying to name a particular sect that might be the great and abominable church, which I think, which I think is a mistake. Uh, that's, that's my own opinion. Um, but, but just as we do that, if, if we tend to, to, to think that this 666 uh, represents one particular individual, we probably have our ladder up the wrong wall. There, there was a Jewish practice known as gematria, if I'm saying that correctly, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A, where uh, letters can be assigned to numbers and vice versa, and this has to do with the fact that uh, most ancient people didn't have a separate numbering system and alphabet, and so they used letters to derive numbers and, and to derive quantities and numerical values. But when this practice is is put to a pen, we can find that there are several words that that um, can be turned into the number six six six, and some of them are quite interesting. For example, the Greek word T H E R I O N, which is the word for beast, uh, can equal six six six. So so that would certainly be an appropriate interpretation. Uh, it, it's also possible to do the same with the Emperor Nero uh, if his name is rendered in Hebrew. Uh, so that's a little more of a stretch, but still a possibility. Again, I think, I think that the most probably useful thing to take from this, in my own opinion, is that uh, the, these three digits could represent this, this trinity this this counterfeit trinity that's be, trinity that's being presented to us uh, in this chapter and in the previous of the dragon and of the beast that comes from the water and this third beast which comes from the land. It's hard to imagine uh, worshiping such a, a grotesque and twisted trinity, but it seems that uh, many in the earth. Uh, will do that and do do that today uh, and that we too could fall prey to the practice of worshiping false gods and their idols and that can happen to us if we fall prey to the teachings of false prophets and false Christs and we learn then from this and other related scriptures that we can be tempted and lulled into believing their teachings. Their teachings generally tend to be grounded in a philosophy that, that teaches that salvation is actually easy. Uh, in the Book of Mormon where it says it's not reasonable that there should be a Christ, um, that property exists for the taking, 
um, and that uh, basically that wickedness is happiness and that we fare according to the management of the creature, as Korahor said. So I believe that this chapter uh, has great utility for us and and through reading it and, and pondering what the Lord would have us learn from it, we we come away with the idea that we would like to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that to do so, we'll have to have the patience and the faith of the saints, as it says in verse 10. To that I would add, to that patience and faith, that we need to have vigilance and diligence and be wise and uh, be able to recognize these false philosophies that are coming then from uh, this evil source.